I had a, I thought about doing a change in my sermon after I saw the creatures looking at us and talk about preaching the gospel to every creature. And uh, this is the first time I've had a bobcat staring out of the pulpit at me, or you at least, I don't have to see it. And someone said, uh, it's a scary looking thing, I don't know if I want to watch it. I wasn't sure if they're talking about me or the bobcat, but I, I don't know. But uh, thank you. As I get set up here, uh, I just wanted to say a special thank you to all you students. This, uh, whoops, here we go. This past weekend was a very busy time for you. Past week has been, and you folks are just wonderful and have ministered to my heart this morning in your testimonies, your Bible reading, in the songs. Uh, and ladies, thank you for that song. It was just great. Uh, but I appreciate you. I appreciate your your continued servanthood like manner and doing things and I say that you are true servants of the Lord and we appreciate you here so all right I'll get that set up and try anyways we're going to the book of Colossians first of all Colossians chapter 2 and what I am looking at this morning uh, I want to look at some types or a type of Christ that is found in scripture but uh, a few years ago I had a guy tell me he said you know we make too much of types in the Bible in other words typology uh, that we look everywhere for Christ in, in maybe the Old Testament, things like that. And I, I said, well, it, types are important because the Bible comments on them and says that they're there. And one of those comments, by the way, is found in, um, I'm just going to call that up here, uh, found in chapter 2 of Colossians where he, Paul writes and he talks about the shadow of things to come in reference to Christ. And he's talking about the things that were in the past, the Old Testament illustrations he uses. And I want to begin reading in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, and these would be good things for us to absorb, although this isn't our primary text this morning. It says, Beware lest any man should uh, or spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And for in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, where also you are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised Him from the dead. And you, being dead, Uh, in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him having forgiven you all trespasses blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us and took it out of the way nailing it to his cross and having spoiled principalities and powers he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body, or the substance of it, is of Christ. And right there in the book of Colossians, Paul points us back, and he pointed this Colossian, uh, people in Colossae, and this group of people, these Christians, this church, back to the things that were solid, back into the Scriptures, and he says these things were a substance, or they weren't the substance, but they were a shadow of something greater to come. The substance, the body of it, is Christ. And when we go back in and we look at so much in the Old Testament, uh, so much of it points us to Him. And you can never go wrong when you point people to Christ, 
and you find him on every page in the Word of God. And I say that, you know, obviously there are some pages in the Scripture that have more picture of Christ. But Jesus, or it's said of him, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. Right? So we can look throughout the Scripture and find him in these pages. I want to go now to the book of Exodus. We're going to go and look at a portion of the tabernacle uh, as it was instructed under the hand of Moses uh, by the Lord Himself. In Exodus chapter 26. Exodus chapter 26. And we're going to start around verse 31. And I think you can see that behind me. I'll pull up the text in front of you as well. But we have here in in the book of Exodus uh, the description from the Lord, the pattern that was established by Him to make a tabernacle or for the people to make a tabernacle. And they were to do this uh, as a place to, again, focus their attention to the Lord. And it was a picture or a type in every way, all through this, uh, uh, this tabernacle, as the pattern itself came from God, uh, it was a picture of someone greater who was going to come. Really, the same one whose glory was associated with it and dwelt here at the tabernacle, uh, who whose glory overshadowed the mercy seat and the Lord Himself. And there were pictures of, really, the picture of, the, of salvation. It's a gospel message in the Old Testament. And though it is concealed somewhat in the Old Testament, it is revealed in the New Testament. And that's what types do. Uh, they're concealed somewhat but, or veiled, but then they are seen later on and clearly explained. And we are thankful today, I am thankful today, that we have the completed Word of God and we have the Word of God to comment on itself and to show us what these things mean. And there is all kinds of, around these chapters, you have the instructions of how they were to make the various articles of the tabernacle, uh, the, the dimensions of it, uh, the, you know, the outside part of it, the inner part of it. Uh, here we're looking at the holy place, and within the holy place, uh, specifically, they were to uh, erect a veil in the temple. And that's where we come here in Exodus 26. And there are a few verses here I want to look at this morning, starting in verse 31. It says, And thou shalt make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen of cunning work. With cherubim shall it be made. And thou shalt hang it upon four pillars of shittim wood, overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold upon the four sockets of silver. And thou shalt hang up the veil uh, under the tashes that thou mayest bring in thither within the veil the ark of the testimony, and the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the Word of God, and I thank you for giving it to us that we can handle it today. Thank you, Lord, it can dwell richly within our hearts and minds. And and Lord, the verses that were shared already and how, oh God, you just continue to remind us of who you are So we pray today that as we open up this text here, Christ might be seen, that we might draw closer to Him. Thank you that we have now direct access into Your very presence. And so we come before You this morning asking, Lord, You would open Your Word to our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, Amen. These few verses that we read here are the instruction from God for them to hang this uh, article called the veil. It's a curtain, and it's mentioned. And it was specifically hung in the holy place that um, the Scriptures reveal to us. I want to back up. You have the dimensions of the temple here, or excuse me, the tabernacle. 
And this is just a kind of a schematic drawing of it. And we're in this area called the Holy Place. It was about 45 feet long and about 15 feet wide. And the between that, of about 30 feet of it, was called the Holy Place. And then the Scriptures talk about the most holy place or the holiest of holies. And between that was to hang a veil, a curtain. And God, as we just read, God gave instruction on what that was to look like, what it might have, you know, sort of... Uh, looked like. We don't know for sure. We know it had colors mentioned, and it has a pattern that was to be put on it of cherubim. Those are angelic beings. We'll look at that here in a moment. And we don't know for sure what it looked like. But we do, with a little sanctified imagination, perhaps you could look at something like that and say, maybe it looked like that. But we can, I want to I want to look at what it does say in the text and exactly how this veil, uh, back up here one slide to there, what this veil perhaps symbolizes, and as it is a type of Christ, it really is. Uh, and it's important that we do that. Uh, one of the definitions of a type, a type is a representation by one thing of another. And uh, Adam was a type of Christ, right? We learn of that directly in Romans chapter 5, verse 14. Uh, Isaac is mentioned as a, as a type of Christ. And you see that in Hebrews eleven nineteen. The The Passover meal itself was a type that is fulfilled and found in the person of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 5.7. And there are many, many, many of these things. Today we're just looking at one. We're looking at this, the veil that is mentioned in the tabernacle that was built there in the wilderness. I want to look this morning at, first of all, the pattern of the, the veil itself. The pattern of it. See, the pattern came from the Lord Himself, and it was something he established we you know god didn't uh, say hey just go make some place but he said i want you to make a place and this is what it's going to look like this is what its size is going to be like these are the dimensions all those different things were given to them and the colors are mentioned there in our text and it says there in exodus 26 verse 31 that thou shalt make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen of cunning work where with cherubims shall it be made. And the first thing I want to look at is the colors that were found within this curtain, this veil. It was not a big item in the tabernacle. It was actually only about 15 by 15. That's it. And it separated uh, the holy place from the most holy place. And we'll get to that here in a moment. But the colors are mentioned. And it mentions, first and foremost, it mentions the color blue. Uh, I don't know exactly what shade of blue it was. Um, the word that is used in the Hebrew is a word that was uh, derived, I guess, from the shellfish that they used to make kind of an indigo blue out of. It was very common. So maybe it was a rich kind of violet almost blue. We don't really know. Um, but it was blue. And really blue, when you think of blue, that well, a lot of things are associated with blue, but the Jews, I think, uh, very clearly in their own writings, they talk about blue being a symbol of the firmament or the, the sky that is above us. And I think it's a picture here of the origin of not only the tabernacle, it originated in God's mind, not our minds. Just as Christ, who, by the way, does not have an origin and that He ever became, He was always, all right? But Christ did not originate with man, did He? Nor did He just grow up from our race of people, but He entered into our race of people. And that yet was future when this was being written and instructed to Moses. 
He comes from above. He's not from the earth. And you say, well, maybe you're stretching it a little bit there, Jack. I don't know. Uh, Well, I can tell you this, that in some of the writings, and it's interestingly enough, the the color blue, which is a very, uh, you know, the colors of the Israeli flag, right? You have blue and white. Uh, The Israeli flag, I have a slide of that down here. I'll just call that up for you. But you have the Israeli flag today, which is a Zionist flag. It was uh, actually, they came to this design back in the 1890s. And with the hope of going back to occupy the land that God had promised them. And they intertwined blue in there. Actually, from the book of Numbers, they were told to uh, that the priests and the men who were to they offer up prayers, that part of the garment, which is kind of a shawl, was to be with white linen with blue threads in it. That came from God, that imagery. And that is for, through the centuries down to even this day, uh, that is built right into the flag of Israel, which is sort of both a religious and secular uh, symbol that is used. It is the Star of David in the center, a symbol of Judah, a symbol of the scepter of righteousness, which uh, they believe Judah, out of Judah one will come who will reign, Messiah, who will be associated with David's throne and that covenant that was given to his people. And today they've adopted that as their national symbol. Uh, But the blue stripes, and this is what one of the Zionist poets, a Jew from Austria, said years ago, and hopefully I can find the right one. This is from uh, Ludwig Frankl, who was an Austrian poet, Jewish. He said of the Jewish colors, he says, When sublime feelings his heart fill, he is mantled in the colors of his country. He's referring to a, a Jewish male who's standing. He stands in prayer, wrapped in a sparkling robe of white, The hems of the white robe are crowned with broad stripes of blue. Like the robe of the high priest, adorned with bands of blue threads, these are the colors of the beloved country. Blue and white are the colors of Judah. White is the radiance of the priesthood, and blue the splendors of the firmament. I really believe that the colors that God associated with this veil that was there in the tabernacle First and foremost, those colors would have reminded them that this came from above. And there's one who's coming who is from above. Somehow he was going to deliver us from our sins. He would be the redeemer that was the long expected one, right? The one from all the ages, eternity past, that man looked for. The one who would find his fulfillment not as the first Adam, but the second Adam. Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful we have that. The second color that is mentioned there is the color scarlet. And that's the second one. And I think, again, scarlet, that's that bright red, it is associated with blood. By the way, it's particularly associated with blood that is flowing. And when somebody dies and they're wounded and you see bright red blood coming out of your body, that's a bad thing. <laughs> Because your blood is flowing out and your life is flowing out. And we learn from the Old Testament and again revealed in the New the explanation of those things that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. There cannot be. See, God preordained it that way. He established it that way. He said the life is in the blood. And when you say, what did it cost God to redeem us? To save us from our sins? It cost Him His very own life's blood. 
And that God the Son, in the person of Jesus Christ, shed His blood on a cross for us. And as that blood flowed mingled down and everything around it was covered in blood, it was a solemn reminder that that way into the very presence of God was being opened. And when Jesus died and He gave up the ghost and He said before that it was finished, the reference to that really was that the price of salvation was being paid for. It was paid. And you know, one of the miracles that took place on that day on that Friday afternoon as the, the, the Sabbath was approaching and the sun was setting and it was getting dark. It was dark because there was a special darkness that had settled on the earth because the Son of God Himself was dying. And you know one of the great things that happened was the temple veil was torn in two. Clearly validating that that was a type somehow in the temple. It was no longer needed, by the way. And... You know, we talk about those things as we approach them, cover them here at classes. We look at that. We see the scarlet. Oh, I I better back up. I skipped over the purple, didn't I? That was the second color. The third color is the scarlet. Let's back up one to the purple. Purple is the color of royalty, isn't it? It's the color that they adorned Jesus with when he stood and they mocked him. You remember? They took a robe, a kingly robe. Belonged to a man who thought he was pretty important here. He really wasn't. He was just another man. And they put a robe on Jesus. And then they wove a, a crown of thorns. He who is Lord of Eden. He is who is the Lord of all creation. He the one who met the curse. Thorns, thistles, head on. Placed upon Him. And they mocked Him. Saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Well, he's more than king of the Jews. He is king of the Jews, but he's king of kings. He's Lord of lords. And we know that the book of Revelation identifies him very clearly as the one in Revelation 19.16, uh, the one who's coming again. And I'll back that up a little bit to uh, previous. Oh, it describes a little bit about the Lord, that people will see him. It says, His eyes were as a flame of fire, verse 12. And his head, or on his head, were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but himself. And he was clothed with a vesture, a garment, dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a a, a sharp sword, that with it should smite the nations. And it says, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God, and He hath on His vesture and on His thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. You know, if anybody else had that written on their shirt to identify them as that, it would be blasphemy, but not Him, because He rightfully is King of kings. I was thinking of that because you see sometimes, uh, maybe in the media or on the news, uh, where authorities are visiting some house to maybe conduct a police raid or something. You always see these men, they're going in, or, or people going in, and they're getting ready to enter a house, and on the back of their uh, coats, it might say FBI, special agent. It might say RCMP, police, something like that. And you can identify their authority. All right, this is a police officer. He's entering into a building. He has a right to do that under the law. Uh, 
he wouldn't have a right to wear King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This one who is coming again someday, the one who is uh, typified in the veil of the tabernacle way back there is the Lord of Lords. He's going to have these kingly colors associated with him that were associated way back there. There is the cloth in the veil itself. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 26 and in verse 32 there and uh, verse back at 31. He says, and you will make a veil, it says, uh, of blue, purple, scarlet, and fine twined linen. Fine twined linen. It, they were to mingle in this or make out of it. It, it was is, is fine twined linen, and now linen is a, is a white cloth. I, I think it might be a reference here to the substance of the veil itself was to be made out of this um, with it, weaved into it. And you have this, and the word fine meaning bright or white. It's a shazar, I guess is what it is, and it means alabaster. It's used as that. It's a color um, as much as a description of what it is. So there was a white associated with that. And of course, white, I believe, is a picture that reminds us of purity, doesn't it? This one who is pictured in the veil is pure. He's of, from above, not from the earth. And every part of him is pure. We are reminded that it was to be uh, fine twined or enough cunning work. Those old English words, uh, the New King James uh, puts it uh, fine woven linen. And it's to be woven with an artistic design. You see that it was not just something that was to be put together or manufactured overseas in a, in a sweatshop somewhere. <laughs> It was something that was to be handled carefully and something that was God's design and it was fine craftsmanship. In the picture of Christ, Christ Himself was God's making. Really, I mean, as far as God becoming a man. You theology students, remember, what union is that? The what? The hypostatic union, right? That God and man... Somehow existing, that union, will he's both 100% God and 100% man, the person of Jesus Christ. That's the incarnation of Christ. This finely twined uh, linen that is interweaved here uh, reminds us of that. And again, you know that um, Psalm 40, where it's quoted there in Psalm 40, let's look at that. This is a reference. It's also quoted again in Hebrews chapter 10. There in Hebrews 10, it's clearly identified as, as Christ is what is this comments on in the book of Psalms. The Holy Spirit commenting on the Word of God. He identifies this as about Jesus. Look what it says in verse 6 of Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you did not deserve. Let me go back to the authorized version here. Psalm 40. In verse 6, sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offerings and sin offering hast thou not required. And said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Right? And you know what you have here? Uh, You have the, the comments on this. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. It's further explained. And here, 
Look what he says. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. In other words, those Old Testament rituals that were associated with the tabernacle, though they were God's pattern and God established them, and it was really the methodology by which people trusted the Lord by faith. They were evidencing their faith in Him by believing and saying, trust me, that's what He was doing. Those things in and of themselves were weak. They were not the true substance of what was to come. And it was later the true substance, which is Christ, which could save us and His, his vicarious death, uh, His resurrection over death, right? That saves us, that work. And I'm explaining more than that's written here, but he says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. And I called up too much there. There we go. In other words, this, um, who prepared the body of the Lord Jesus? Was it somebody here on earth? I came into existence, uh, won't go into details of biology, but you all know you took high school biology. We came into existence the same way. There was a mother, there was a father involved, and my body was prepared uh, as two people came together. In Jesus, it was slightly different, wasn't it? His birth, his conception really, was in the virgin's womb. He had no earthly father, yet he became man. How can that be? Because... The Lord prepared. The Lord Himself prepared the body of the Son. And He entered into human flesh. Thus not being tainted by sin. Which was passed on through Adam and Adam's race. And yet, His blood that flowed through His veins was human blood. That's a mystery somewhat. I can't fully understand it, but you can understand where it, why it was necessary for sure. This is very much pictured in that finely twined uh, work, that cunning work, meaning very well done work. In Christ's case, perfect in every way. He is made without sin. You see the construction used in the veil, and that's the pattern, but there was a purpose behind the veil as well. We'll go back to Exodus chapter 26 and in verse 31 there, but you read on. And he says exactly how you're to hang it. And it was not to have a, a, a parting point in the middle of it, rather on the ends. And that's how the priest would ever go in. The high priest would go in to the, behind the veil. He would have to go around the edges of it. Uh, but there's a reason for the veil. First of all, it served as a warning. It warned them. It says the veil, verse 33, the end of it, the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy. It was a divider. Uh, it would be kind of awkward today if I stood up here and, and there was a curtain between us. All right, uh, You might hear a voice, kind of like the Wizard of Oz, I guess, right? This big booming voice. And, uh, but, you know, it's just me back there with my levers and things, right? Uh, but in this case, that would be very awkward, wouldn't it? And I was thinking about that. This was awkward. Every bit of it was awkward. God said, I want you to do all these big things. They had to make garments. They had to do all these rituals. They had to make this building, which was not a very simple building. It's a very complex building. And it had to be done with the right materials. And all these things had to be followed or it wasn't right. God said, I want it all right. Very awkward. And then I'm going to put this article called the Ark of the Testimony, the 
the Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to put that in this certain place and my glory will be associated with it and there will be a blood offering sacrificed on that. All kinds of pictures, but there's a veil, a curtain between you and it. Constant reminder that the sacrifice for redemption for sin was not yet paid for. And everything should stay out. You look through the tabernacle and as you go through it, you know that there, there was this outer court, right? And there was this curtain, not a real high curtain. You wouldn't have been able to see over it if you were at ground level, but if you went up on the hill, maybe you could look down and see over it. It wasn't very high, but, but it said to the people of Israel, keep out. And then there were priests uh, of the Levitical order that could go within that, and they would operate all the rituals and sacrifices that went on in the temple, in the tabernacle. Later, the temple pictured or built upon the original design of the tabernacle. But then there was this, just a few that could go in a little further to the holy place, and they had to do this all very much established by God's plan. And then, really, just the high priest who could go in and offer a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, he would do so, sacrificing first for himself as a sinner, and then next on behalf of the people. Did that year after year, you know, day after day, these rituals. Everything said, stay out. Then finally, Christ comes. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, didn't He? And at the cross, He dies there. He sheds His blood. Uh, it is finished. And according to the book of Hebrews, really offers Himself up a sacrifice. It's the final sacrifice. No more needed. And to practice those things today, it's not needed for salvation. Someday in the millennial kingdom, there'll be a temple. And those sacrifices will be there again. You say, well, why? We won't need that as a memorial. Wow. People will look back and say that. But you'll understand it fully. When they were doing this under Moses, you know, they didn't fully understand what was going on uh, exactly. But God still said, trust me. That's really what He's declared from the beginning. Even before man fell, before man committed sin and went away from God and was estranged from his Maker, really God just said to Adam and Eve, I want you to trust me. And I really believe fully that's why that tree was in the garden. It was there not so that they might not touch it or things like that. It was, it was they just want you to trust me with this one thing too. In a perfect unfallen world. And man couldn't be trusted with that. <laughs> and in ourselves today we're fallen creatures, aren't we? And we do desire to do the evil things in part from God. Our, our, we, we will go that direction every time. And yet, His ministry to us is one of reconciliation, of conviction, illumination, all those different things the Holy Spirit does so that we might come to Christ, being the center of those things, right? But really, the aspect of faith and the, the way people are saved, same way, isn't it? Trust me. Trust me, Adam and Eve. Trust me, Aaron and Moses. You know, trust me, David. Trust me, Paul. Right? Trust me. Same way. All right, we better move on. Quickly running out of time. I know we need to get done this. But it served as a warning to stay out. And it was a constant reminder that really the presence of God, uh, was, it was, you could not enter in without someone to mediate between that, a priest. It served as a wall. It was a separator. Um, it's interesting that it had cherubim on it. And don't know exactly what these cherubim looked like. Uh, it was established after God's design. And perhaps you had, back this up a little bit, 
We don't know what they would have looked like, but you think about back to the garden. Remember when, in in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve were thrust out of the presence of God in the garden, what did he put there to guard the way back? A cherubim, right? Uh, I think, again, associated with the presence of God and that they're guarding the glory of God. And you have these angelic beings that show up in Scripture when there's the glory of God on display. Right? Isaiah 6, these seraphim, uh, fiery creatures. Uh, I think they're the same ones perhaps mentioned in Revelation 4, the living creatures, the living beasts. It talks about them there and it describes them even further. And they're closely associated with God and His holiness. In Isaiah 6, they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Revelation 4, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I think that's the same creatures. And there, there was a a picture of cherubim. And by the way, there were golden cherubim that were overshadowing the mercy seat on, just on the other side of that. And they were, again, a picture. They, weren't, they were a picture of what I think goes on in heaven, that the angels look on and see the glory of God. And they look at us according to what the New Testament says us, and they, they marvel. They don't even understand those who are redeemed fully. Fallen angels, or excuse me, angels that are not fallen... They don't understand, perhaps, all this about redemption. Not because they'd be ignorant, not at all. But we as creatures, humans, race of people, we're not an order of people, right? We do understand these things. We can understand those things. And we're redeemed. We're saved. I don't know. There's lots of things you could go and do that. It served as a way, by the way, and that's not just a wall, but a way. On the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, you look at that, the priest would go in, and it was a way into the access into the very presence of God. And that's what was pictured there. The cross and Jesus Christ, Jesus Himself was the direct access and is the only access to the very presence of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We know that verse, but that goes right with this. He had served as a witness. While the high priest could enter only once into the Holy of Holies each year, Uh, He would go in and offer himself a sacrifice. Then he would offer a sacrifice for the people. The priests ministered in the holy place every day of the year. That's just outside of it. That would be this area. Constantly doing that. But really they were never allowed to go past that except for one on the Day of Atonement. It was a constant reminder to the priests and to everybody they represented of the moral failure that all of us had. Our sin failure. We fall short of the glory of God. And only through God's way and methodology do we get there. It served as a witness, a very powerful witness. Lastly, there's the parting of the veil, and I'll just turn to that as we close. But Matthew chapter uh, 27, and in verse, uh, what is it, 51. And we just read this because it says, Behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword. And struck, I'm in 26, that isn't 27, that's why I'm, apologize for that. There we go. Verse 50 of Matthew 27. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent, it was torn in two, in twain, from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. Not only did the, this veil be ripped, you know, was ripped aside, but there was a 
an earthquake. I've never been in a big earthquake, but I've been in some small earthquakes. There was one most recently when I was in Guatemala there just a few years ago. In the middle of the night, I heard this rumble, just rumble like this, and the whole house shook. It was just a tremor, nothing. And a few years ago, I experienced that too. I don't know what kind of earthquake this was in Jerusalem, but it shook everything. And I really think it was, again, the Lord, divine. <laughs> the Lord was making a way for the earth, or literally for all people to be saved and to very much go into the very presence of God. And later, the writer of Hebrews says now that we can boldly go, right, into the very presence of God. We can come into that very presence and do that. It provided, really, a way for salvation. So you have that pattern of the, of the veil. You have the purpose of it. The Old Testament purpose was to keep people out. Today, uh, Jesus, who, whose body was torn for us, and just as that veil was torn in the temple, in Matthew 27 here, it shows there's clearly that way for salvation. And lastly, the, the parting of the veil, uh, which goes with it. There's a lot here. And there's quite a message, really, in just that one article that is found there in the tabernacle. Well, I hope you appreciate your salvation. I know as I study these things, it, that's what it does to me. It makes me appreciate even greater these things. There's a lot more that can be said, but we've run out of time. Let's go on. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness to us and the price of our redemption, the cost in which it, it was required that someone would die in our place but not just anybody, but you yourself, God. Thank you for that and for giving us these truths in Jesus' name. Amen.